Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, the cost to borrow money goes up. The economy is still in excess demand. It's overheated. The Bank of Canada raises its benchmark interest rate again and warns there is more to come. When will these hikes end? And... We are working to deliver compensation to these kids as quickly as possible. A deal on hold. We'll get more reaction to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal and its decision to reject the compensation package for Indigenous Canadians put into care. Why the decision to delay? We'll look into that. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. As expected, the Bank of Canada raised its key interest rate today, another 50 basis points, bringing the benchmark rate to 3.75%. Now this is the sixth interest rate increase in this year alone, and the Bank of Canada governor warns it's still not over. Although he also says the bank is aware of the difficulties these decisions are creating for many Canadians. Take a listen. We are mindful that adjusting to higher interest rates is difficult for many Canadians. And many households have significant debt loads and higher interest rates will add to their burden. We don't want this transition to be more difficult than it has to be. But we remain focused on our mandate. Higher interest rates in the short term will bring inflation down in the long term. And getting through this difficult phase will get us back to price stability and sustained growth. So short-term pain for long-term gain, as Tiff Macklin answers some of the criticism being sent his way. But what to make of this 50 basis point decision? How much higher might the rates go? To talk about this, we're reaching out right now to two economists. Armin Yalnizian is an economist and the Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Workers. Mustafa Askari is the Chief Economist with the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy. Hello to the two of you. Hello. Hi. How are you? Armin, I'm going to get you to start us out here. The bank did not introduce a 75-point basis hike as some had expected. Instead, a little lower. What do you make of that? Oh, I don't know. I don't know how to uh, get inside the head of Tiff Macklin or the hundreds of economists that helped him make that decision. But I can say that um, I do think 50 basis points looks like they blinked. Uh, and it looks like they uh, took a look at the... Uh, most recent data, uh, the month over month, quarter over quarter data, and said, maybe we've reached an inflection point. Yeah, there's some pain points still coming. And yeah, the economy is slowing. Uh, they are predicting a 50-50 chance for recession at the by the end of this year and the beginning of next year. So yeah, how much more tightening do you want to do? And they acknowledge in their report that there's a lot of pain coming down the pike for people that are covering debt costs right now. And don't forget, Canadians have got $2.3 trillion worth of debt. So the bill on that is quite high to uh, higher rates. It uh, does take a lot of money out of other purchasing power. So they were doing all of the due diligence in their report, as they must, as they do, uh, and uh, you know, there's going to be some people that say it wasn't enough and other people that say it was too much. And maybe that's the, you know, Goldilocks spot you want to be in as the Bank of Canada governor. 
Yeah, Goldilocks, as you say. But, you know, Mustafa, we've been talking about today's uh, interest rate decision even before the day started. And that's in, in part because we've heard this past week uh, the federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh criticizing the bank for its increases. And if inflation, picking up on Mr. Singh's argument, if inflation is the result of supply shortages and Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, how does making Canadians pay higher interest rates address those inflationary pressures? couple of points on that. The bank cannot do anything about external factors. You know, that's obvious. You know, the oil prices will change or the war in Ukraine and all those other external factors would affect domestic prices and the bank cannot do anything about it. What the bank can do is they can do something about domestic demand. And that's the instrument that they have to interest rate to bring domestic demand down, especially at the time when we see that the supply has not been moving up and we have had this supply issues. So what they are trying to do is to bring demand down so that the supply can catch up with demand and that will reduce the pressure on, on, on prices. I think uh, the, the bank has a mandate. The mandate is to, to hold the inflation within one to three percent. Now for 30 years, they have been able to do that. Now because of the very unique situation of the pandemic and then the war in Ukraine, that has changed. And now, so what they have to do is they have to use their instrument, the instrument that they have to, to bring inflation down. Now, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be painful. It's going to be painful for especially lower-income lower Canadians. There is no doubt. But as the governor said today, there is no easy way out of this. You have to deal with it. If you don't deal with it now and allow this to, to, to continue, then you may have to do actually much more in the future. And that's what happened in the late 80s and early 90s when we ended up with, uh, you know, interest rate in the 20% range. So do we want that? Uh, you know, that would be really painful for, for a lot of people. So, so I think they have, to, they have to do what they have to do. And I think that those kind of a comments of changing the mandate of the government, uh, the Bank of Canada, I don't think those are very helpful especially in the current context, because it could, it could bring uncertainty into the, into the independence of, of the Bank of Canada. Okay, Armin, what would you say to that? Because, you know, as we heard from Mustafa, the, 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 the federal NDP leader is talking about changing the mandate of the Bank of Canada to include into, in Mr. Singh's words, uh, include full employment and the impact on employment. So what would you say to that? Look, if you read the monetary policy report, you will see the full dashboard that they're watching uh, in terms of labor. And they are looking at what the maximum um, potential could be for labor. Virtually every central bank, whether they have an explicit dual mandate or not, is watching all the, li the labor dashboard right now because we are in a very unusual period of labor shortages around the world because wherever there was a baby boom in the Second World War, those baby boomers are now retiring. So there's labor tightness everywhere, and it will be lasting for the next five to 10 years. And the question is, is the economy overheating? That's the part that I find a little bit hard to stomach is there's excess demand because unemployment is low, it is at historic lows. Clearly that's not what the bank is saying, but I would agree with Mustafa that you don't have to bugger around with the uh, dual mandate. We just did a review of what its mandate should be. And I don't think you need to add full employment as the dual mandate. There is a country that does that, it's called the United States. 
and its chief concern is still price stability, as it should be here too. That's the role of the central bank. You want something being done about poor uh, Canadians, about unemployment? We have other tools. The Bank of Canada is not the only actor in this story. We have fiscal tools at our uh, at our disposal too. So you know what we're seeing is actually a realignment of what central banks do and what governments do. And that's the tension that we're seeing. You know, some uh, opposition critics will say you're doing too much. Others will say you're not doing enough. Uh, I think in this case, the uh, government of the day, the federal government of the day, needs to step up its game uh, to make sure that unemployment insurance benefits, EI, is recession ready. It is not. We lapsed back to pre-pandemic conditions at the end of September. I don't know why we didn't fix it, because we know a recession could be coming and we're not recession ready. We could be doing more to help people cover the costs of food or at least helping the sector that makes sure people don't go hungry. Same with the sector that makes sure that people uh, don't go with the house. There's lots that can be done from the fiscal side to offset the, pain, the necessary pain. But I agree completely with Mustafa that if the central bank does not stabilize prices, those same people we are worried about right now are going to be even harder hit down the road. And if you go back to the dirty 30s, the most progressive group in Canada's history wrote a manifesto and the very first thing they wanted for the people, the most populous group, was a, a central bank to stabilize prices. In an, in an environment where one in four Canadian, one in five Canadian is over the age of 65, we've got over a million people unemployed and a bunch of people on disability and on social assistance. These are the groups that are gonna get hammered, absolutely hammered. And not to mention people that have a job full-time, full year, but their wages are not keeping up with the price of basics like food. And the Bank of Canada, mm -hmm. to its credit, actually outlines that problem. It doesn't say, and the government has to do something about it, but that's kind of the implication. Yeah, it's the, not their job. Yeah, the, the implication that the monetary policy needs to also be accompanied with fiscal policy. But you know, the governor does right. say that we're nearing the end of these rate increases, Mustafa. When will the increases stop? Where will the interest rate land before perhaps going back down? Well, I think by the end of November, we're gonna see the uh, number, GDP numbers for the third quarter. And if we see a slowdown there, and the bank will look at the numbers at that time, they probably in the December uh, meeting, they're probably going to do another 25 basis point, and that will be probably the end of it. Unless something else happens externally that would, would allow uh, you know, oil prices again shoot up and then uh, the, the bank will have to take that into account at that point and, and deal with it. But very likely they are going to, to stop probably at the beginning of the next year, they're going to stop raising interest rates. Because by then, if they are right in their forecast, we are going to see either a negative growth in the first half of the year or very small positive growth in the first half of the next year. And if, if that is the case, then they really don't need to, to raise interest rate anymore because it, it shows that the economy is actually going slowly going down and the demand is getting closer to supply and that's that's what they they want to see okay i mean what do you think when will these increases stop where will it actually land at 
I, I'm not as confident as Mustafa because I think it is possible to be in a recessionary condition and still have escalating food prices and ga gas prices. Then what does the central bank do? We already know that bank rate hikes don't do anything about gas prices or food prices. These are the two. And shelter costs are far more amenable to interest domestic interest rate hikes. But all over the world, central banks are moving in lockstep to tame inflation. And it's like, there's elements of inflation you can tame, and there are elements of inflation you cannot tame with raising uh, bank rates. And those are the ones that are actually the most problematic for the population is rising food prices and rising gas prices. Over, you know, we're expecting to see food prices moderate a little bit because we're going to get a bumper crop, sorry, bumper crop in yields this year, at least in Canada. But things like Hurricane Ian, Hurricane Fiona has meant a real crash in produce that's exported to us over the winter uh, months. Uh, we are going to be seeing the p potential for commodities like flour um, and uh, cooking oils also escalate in cost. They're the biggest drivers within CPI right now in the food lines. These are the absolute basics that you get at food banks. And if those prices are rising, there's nothing, I, that's going to be an even harder tightrope for the Bank of Canada to stand back and say, we can't do anything about it. Your job is to do something about it. But everybody acknowledges this isn't about excess demand. It's about inadequate supply. And sure, you can cool demand to try and let supply catch up to it. But what happens if that doesn't happen in the coming months? I think we're in for a very rough ride this fall. Okay. Well, with those encouraging words, <laughs> Armin, Mustafa, <laughs> thank you for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Now, today's Bank of Canada's decision did make its way into question period, including this exchange between the Conservative leader and the Prime Minister earlier today. Today, rates went up another half point, meaning many families will be handing in their keys to the banks because they won't be able to afford those bills. Has the Prime Minister been briefed? by his officials on how many Canadians will lose their homes because of the higher interest rates that his inflationary policies have caused. The right honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, inflation is a worldwide problem right now, but uh, it is a challenge faced by Canadian families that we will continue to support them through. That's why we're delivering supports for families right now in a targeted way, a doubling of the GST credit that will arrive in the coming weeks uh, in their bank accounts, moving forward on support for dental care, moving forward on support for low-income renters, uh, things that the Conservative Party is continuing not just to vote against but to block, uh, and we will continue to do more. We continue to follow reaction today to that decision from the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, the CHRT rejecting the compensation package for First Nations children who were removed from their homes and put into the care and for caregivers affected by discrimination. It is a $20 billion compensation package and part of a $40 billion settlement agreement, but it is now on hold until the parties involved can respond. Well, with her thoughts on the matter, we are now reaching out to Cindy Woodhouse, the AFN Regional Chief for Manitoba. Chief Woodhouse, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Now, as you know, uh, I don't have to tell you, the AFN, along with Cindy Blackstock of the First Nations uh, Child and Family Caring Society, really started fighting for compensation back in 2007. This historic deal is then signed only to have the compensation portion now denied by the Human Rights Tribunal. What's being said about that? What are you hearing right now about how people are feeling? 
Well, certainly First Nations are, are very disappointed. You know, they were looking, many families, 300,000 families, uh, you know, looking forward to being compensated in the in, in the in the months ahead very quickly here and, and only for that to be now uh, washed away from them. So the deal is now on hold. Did you see this coming? There was an appeal, but did you think it would end up with this decision? I did not. I, I thought that, you know, we were, that it's a First Nations-led approach. We did everything that we could to come up with a, a good negotiated deal. Negotiations, as you know, are very hard. They're not perfect. But I think that it was, you know, a fair deal for many of our First Nations uh, people and communities. Mm-hmm. Now, the tribunal sided with the Family Caring Society and saying that the final uh, settlement agreement does not cover the many people who were, in fact, taken away from their families as children, but resettled outside the First Nations child welfare system. Are you opposed to compensating those that have not been covered according to the tribunal? Well, I'll just, I think I'll I'll say this. Uh, Every First Nation child that was placed uh, into care under the First Nations Child and Family Services Program uh, would have been compensated under the final settlement agreement. In addition, the final settlement agreement includes more people over an extended time frame of 15 years due to the class action. Uh, under, um, you know, the final settlement agreement also includes children who faced a delay denial or service under the gaps um, when it comes to Jordan's principal. So I just, you know, I just think, you know, our only our only exclusion was uh, on, on in the final settlement agreement are the estates of the uh, deceased caregivers because they agreed upon priority was to get compensation to the children. The estate of the late late uh, Marina Beadle by chat by uh, for example has agreed with this. One of her children is a representative plaintiff in the class action. They fu- the, they filed an affidavit in support of the FSA in federal court. Um, we also included non-ISC funded and Indigenous Services Canada funded placements because the parties did not agree that they were covered by the CHRT order. Okay, so that said, there are still, and I take what you're saying, that there are a number of people, hundreds of thousands of people covered by the, the, the final agreement, the settlement agreement as written, but what's the harm of waiting until all of this can and address those individuals uh, and estates that uh, the Caring Society is raising issue with? Well, I think, you know, you negotiations are negotiations. They're just that. Uh, there's no perfect agreement. Uh, we will have to be, we will have to go back and review the tribunal's decisions in detail and then consider the best course of action on how to move this process forward. Okay, determine the next course the next course of action. And interestingly, that's exactly what we're also hearing from federal ministers because they reacted to the decision when it came yesterday. Uh, but in ahead of actually seeing the, the final decision itself and the reasoning for it, what do you think the next steps should be in order to get compensation to individuals quicker than otherwise it would be? Absolutely. Well, you know, we're... I'm working on um, some resolutions with my Manitoba chiefs today. I know, uh, trying to find a path forward. I know that, uh, you know, even though we're all disappointed in in, in this, uh, it's a very sad day yesterday. You know, $40 billion is hard to come by. Sometimes government change quickly. And, and even just to get to this point um, took a lot of, took a lot of time. And, and so, 
you know, certainly we'll never give up on trying to help our First Nations kids. We'll continue to try to go back to the drawing board to see if there's um, something in our toolbox that we can use to try and uh, make make parts of this work. Uh, and then we'll have to speak to, of course, the other parties uh, mm-hmm. on where their thoughts are. So, so lots of discussions that need to happen. Mm-hmm. I guess I take it from how you're describing this. Your fear is this is not going to be a matter of weeks or months to resolve, but potentially years and that's what you're worried about yeah it's very disheartening you know to get even just to get this like the the negotiations that i've been a part of even that was very difficult and i thank the prime minister and i thank the canadian government for for putting the money in when i requested it and asking them and working in good faith that way only for it to crumble yesterday was very uh, very upsetting for many many people chief woodhouse thank you very much for the time today Thank you. Well, let's stay on this issue and bring in Sarah Clark. She is the co-complainant for the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada in this case. Ms. Clark, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Uh, listen, I want to begin here with your reaction to the decision because, as you know, there is some disappointment being expressed among the AFN leadership and others, but is it fair to say that you are relieved this has happened? Um, So keeping in mind that I'm counsel for the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society, I I think what I would say on behalf of the Caring Society's legal team is that I don't think really relief is the best um, expression. I think some some concern around the, the fact that it has taken this long to get to this point. It is unfortunate, I think, that this had to even come to this. Um, what we can say, though, is that it is a good day for human rights uh, in Canada. It is a good day for children's human rights, because what the tribunal said in its ruling that it was what that was released yesterday is that all children who have already had their human rights affirmed by the tribunal have to be part of the settlement. So from that perspective, I think we are very pleased that the ch- no children are going to be cut out of the settlement. OK, let's build on that, though, because I think it might be worthwhile to to remind people about who the final settle agreement, uh, settlement agreement does not, in your opinion, cover and why you think it's important that it does. So we have to go back to 2007 and it's hard to, I'm sure in the short time that we have today, kind of jam in everything that's happened over the last uh, you know, decades that had, this case has been going on. But it's important to remember that since 2007, the Assembly of First Nations and the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society together had brought this massive human rights complaint against the federal government for its unfair and discriminatory funding uh, for children on reserve receiving child welfare services and also for children receiving social services. And so when discrimination was found in 2016, it did so you know within the framework of the complaint so it said that kids who were removed from their home family or communities were entitled to compensation and kids who were delayed or denied in basic social services that other Canadians are entitled to are also entitled to, to compensation so those are the kids that form part of the complaint what happened in this case is that outside of the human rights process a number of class actions were also commenced And those class actions don't necessarily mirror what's been going on at the human rights complaint side. And that's not to suggest that those victims are not entitled to compensation. Never has the Caring Society said that other kids who are part of other pieces of litigation should not be compensated. But what we have said is that the kids who are part of this complaint 
who have already won legal orders and have already had their entitlements recognized by the tribunal need to be a part of the settlement. And what ultimately happened was that in the class action settlement, some children, in particular kids who were in what we call non-federally funded uh, placements, so kids who were removed from their families and placed outside of their homes, but weren't necessarily in federally funded foster care, the final settlement agreement that was brought to the tribunal cut those kids out. And what we said to the tribunal was, those kids can't be cut out. You've already given them an award of money. They need to be part of the settlement. And yet, the final settlement agreement was negotiated with Indigenous leadership. And right now, uh, they are very disappointed. Uh, we just heard uh, from Chief Woodhouse in Manitoba talking about how long it took to get to this point and the concern that by uh, essentially delaying the compensation package that we could be seeing years before any compensation is paid out. She's worried about a change of government. How do you address those concerns and those fears now being raised because of this decision? Well, I think what's, what's important that we have to keep in mind, and Canada has always had the power to do the right thing. So from the moment the complaint was brought in 2007 to the moment the tribunal said that Canada was discriminating against in 2016, to the moment the tribunal said, you need to compensate these children, these victims right here and right now, that was in 2019. And Canada chose not to do that. Instead, it chose to continue fighting against the Assembly of First Nations, fighting against the Caring Society, and really what that really means is litigating against kids and their basic human rights. So I echo those fears around delay and concerns, but Canada has the power to do the right thing right now. They could pay the money out from the tribunal orders to all of the victims who already have won those legal entitlements and continue to negotiate with the class action team. There is nothing stopping them from doing that. Uh, and and I, 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 I don't want to minimize the concerns. They are real concerns. And if you're a kid waiting for your settlement, uh, that's a real concern. But what the Caring Society wanted to make sure was that kids who already had been promised by the Human Rights Tribunal that you matter, you have basic human rights in this country that we recognize and we're going to compensate you for the infringement of your dignity and for being discriminated against. All we said to the tribunal was, you cannot cut those children out. And the tribunal agreed. It said, we have already recognized that these children have fundamental rights, mm -hmm. and we can't now derogate from those rights because the settlement doesn't quite squeeze them in. Okay, I need a really quick answer here. Uh, so listening to that, you don't think this needs to go back to the drawing board. You think the federal government can just go ahead and compensate and get this over and done with? I think the federal government has always had the power to do what's right. It knows what's right. The solutions are right there in front of it. The tribunal has told them how they can do the right thing and they should just do it. Sarah Clark, thank you for the time. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. That point from Sarah Clark about just paying affected parties and that no court or tribunal order was needed. Well, it was asked of the prime minister today in question period. Take a listen to how he answered. Yesterday, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal reaffirmed our knowledge that this government continues to willfully discriminate against Indigenous children. This government must listen to advocates and make sure every child affected is eligible for compensation and leaves no one behind. Will this government find solutions outside of the courts so children do not have to wait any longer? The right Honourable Prime Minister. Speaker. 
exactly what we did was uh, work directly uh, with Indigenous peoples, uh, First Nations and, and uh, other Indigenous peoples to ensure uh, that we were moving forward on supporting the people uh, who needed it, on getting that compensation uh, to those people who had been harmed uh, by uh, practices of government's past. Uh, we uh, work, we are continuing to stand with uh, AFN, uh, Trout and Mushum uh, to make sure that we are working to deliver compensation to these kids as quickly as possible. We know they deserve compensation. We want to be there for them as we have always said we would be. And finally tonight, new census numbers on immigration, diversity and religion in this country to share with you. According to StatsCan, 23% of people in this country identified as immigrant or permanent resident last year. That leads G7 countries. It is also the largest number of people identifying as either in this country since Confederation. Immigrants and permanent residents could also account for 34% of the population within the next two decades, as immigration remains the biggest driver of population growth and the big driver of the Canadian economy. Take a listen to the Immigration Minister and Nova Scotia MP, Sean Fraser. Uh, we're losing in my, uh, my region of the country, uh, 10 workers for every seven that join every year. Uh, we need to continue to embrace immigration if we're going to not just be having conversations, avoid not just having conversations about a labor shortage, but 30 years from now paying for schools and hospitals and sustaining basic social services uh, that we take for granted. Now, immigrants did account for 80% of the recent growth in Canada's labor force, and nearly two-thirds of new arrivals are in their core working years, aged 25 to 54. And that is the program for this evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for joining us. We'll see you again tomorrow.